Welcome to episode 111 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest of the week, Suzanne Spaulding, the Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate at DHS. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you, Stuart. Great to be here. Yeah, and I, I have to say, I never can remember what that second P stands for. And now that I see it here in print, uh, I understand why. I mean, programs, what could be more generic? I, I, I'm really looking forward to the day when you uh, actually become the uh, Cybersecurity uh, Administration. Cyber and Infrastructure Protection, CIP. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm there. That's our new name, yes. Terrific, terrific. Also, we're joined by Alan Cohn, formerly the head of strategy for DHS and second in charge of DHS policy, now of counsel to Steptoe. Welcome, Alan. Thanks, Stuart. And Katie Castle, uh, uh, who is an attorney in our uh, uh, cybersecurity practice uh, here in D.C. Katie, uh, uh, you're becoming a regular. This is your second time in a row. Yes. Thanks, Stuart. All right. Uh, uh, and as I said to her uh, earlier, uh, already it's gone from an honor to a chore, but uh, she's, she's bearing up well under it. And I am Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and the record holder for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's get started. The, uh, the news of the week surely is that uh, Senators Burr and Feinstein have released their uh, bill on encryption uh, uh, and uh, uh, it has received exactly the kind of welcome you would have expected. Uh, uh, dozens of crypto libertarians and their journalistic enablers uh, have jumped on this to say that the uh, legislation is a really bad idea and won't work anyway. Uh, but I think let's start with actually what the legislation proposes because it's remarkably short. Uh, there's like two pages of uh, uh, sense of Congress um, uh, uh, statements uh, and then probably six pages of definitions uh, and then a very, very short uh, uh, requirement that essentially says, uh, uh, notwithstanding any other provision of law, an entity that receives a court order for information shall provide the information in an intelligent intelligible format, uh, and if it has to be decrypted, we'll find a way to decrypt it. Uh, that essentially is what the requirement is, apart from a bunch of language explaining and uh, detailing the definitions uh, um, of the various terms. Uh, uh, so it is a, uh, it's a, a, a standard for compliance. It just says you will do this. It doesn't tell people how to do it. It just says uh, if you essentially if you supply encryption, then you also have to be capable of decrypting uh, uh, the content that's been encrypted with whatever it is you provided, whether it's hardware or software or uh, um, simply an app in your store, you've got to be able to decrypt it. Is that, is that how you see it, Alan? Yes, I think it, it was what the tech community would describe as kind of a magic unicorn bill, um, because it basically it says exactly that. It says we're not requiring or prohibiting any specific design or operating system, um, but you have to be able to comply with these provisions. And uh, we're not going to say one way or another that you have to have a uh, a way in or not, but the, but you have to be able to do these things. 
Um, and so it basically throws it throws the issue back over the transom to say there's got to be a, a a technological way to design your products in this way. Right, and we know that Senator Wyden has said he will fight it. Well, this is the you know the least surprising news of the week, uh, and that a deeply divided White House is uh, not prepared to uh, uh, say anything about uh, the legislation. Uh, uh, so uh, no surprises there. I guess I think the. The notion that this is uh, mandating uh, unicorns or that pigs fly or stones bleed or whatever the uh, uh, preferred metaphor is, I think that's just wrong. This does not require something that's impossible. Uh, there's plenty of encryption that can be decrypted uh, and plenty of ways to uh, uh, make encryption decryptable without making it uh, uh, backdoored in a fashion that produces uh, massive uh, um, vulnerabilities. Uh, there, there is a vulnerability for sure. The fact that you can decrypt it means that uh, uh, there'll be an interest in finding a way to induce the company that created the encryption to actually de do the decryption. Uh, but that's, that's quite different from saying that something has been required that's impossible to do. Stuart, I, the, the, the one issue with that is it doesn't have any design requirements. The law specifically said, the proposal specifically says that um, it won't limit your design requirements. So if a company did create an encryption that it could not decrypt, um, it's pretty unclear. It doesn't say that that's prohibited by this law. And so it's pretty unclear if you got a court order and you said, but it's impossible, for, it's actually impossible for me to comply um, what they would do. It's it's not like Kalia that requires certain, you know, design requirements in the network. I, I'm not sure I agree with you on that, Katie. Uh, uh, this says that if you receive a court order, you shall decrypt it. Uh, and uh, um, knowing that you could receive a court order uh, means that you uh, need to be able to respond to, to the court order in the way that the statute requires. Uh, so it does seem to me that uh, uh, it's it's hard to argue I should be able to design a product that uh, uh, doesn't allow me to decrypt it uh, and this law has nothing to say about it. It's true, it, it says we don't tell you how to def uh, design your product, uh, but I think implicit in that is the statement that of course you do have to design it so that you can comply with this law. Well, I do think that that what Katie's putting her finger on is this the issue that it, it's not that the that I think the opponents of this bill would say that this is not technically possible to do. Um, it's that number one, the government hasn't said, you know, here's our solution to how you do this. And but second, it it kind of pushes the pushes the debate, I think, rightfully back to where it belongs, which is kind of off of the substantive provisions uh, and into the policy justifications. Um, and that because this is really where the where the battle gets joined. And it's interesting to read kind of the sense of Congress provisions, which are typically kind of throwaway provisions. But as we know, when you hit um, issues of constitutional law, they are where the recitations of both of both interest um, and and authority uh, sit. Um, and it's a it's a very fine kind of balancing line between the. The, the, the concerns of economic growth and prosperity on the one hand, the and then security, stability, and liberty uh, on the other. Um, and it's, it's an interesting walk through the, through the recitations to see this kind of delicate tiptoe around, well, we do believe that there should be rule of law. 
but we also believe that there should be um, uh, the ability to to do you kind of talk you kind of hit through each of the um, each of the major policy concerns in the in the in the front end, but without a real kind of and here's our solution. And I think this is what people have been looking for, which is that you know that's where the debate should be joined. Now the fact that we're in a presidential election year uh, means that we're probably not to not going to join it completely. And I think the White House is um, is uh, taking advantage of that uh, by uh, by taking a pass on on commenting. Uh, but it may be. Well, it's really it, more no, the. No, nobody really cares what the, nobody really cares what the Obama administration thinks about this, precisely because there isn't going to be a, a bill that passes. So, uh, uh, if you're the Obama White House, you you just you just duck it. And and that's effectively what they've done. Yeah. Uh, no, I think you're you're you you've got this right. I, the criticisms here uh, have that. Thoroughly obnoxious techie approach uh, that I once characterized as uh, uh, showing up at a policy meeting to, to, to debate with the other side and sitting down and saying, "We're smart, we're rich, you're not, we win." Uh, that uh, the kind of presumption that uh, uh, they can pull rank by saying we're smarter than. Uh, Senators Byrne and Feinstein and the people who are on that side. So we have to win. Uh, and I think that's just, uh, that, that's quite wrong. It is perfectly possible to design a, uh, uh, a system that allows you to decrypt if you need to. In fact, practically every system that uh, uh, provides encryption for employees of a corporation also imply, apply, uh, also offers a way to decrypt the communication if the corporation wants to decrypt it. But you don't think that ultimately the the policy uh, underpinnings and the sense of Congress language and, and kind of the approach is almost the toddler parent approach, which is at the end of the day, we can go back and forth on this, uh, but you have to do this because I said so. Oh, you know, that for sure. That's It's saying uh, we've made the social judgment that we want to be able to decrypt this when there's a court order. Uh, that's that's a um, political and social uh, determination. But, I, you know, I'm not sure that this is that different from saying to uh, every car company, your cars have to get, on average, 35 miles per gallon. Uh, uh, and we're not telling you how to do that, uh, but uh, we want to increase uh, the uh, uh, average mileage of cars on the road, and uh, we're just going to tell you, you do it, you figure out how. Uh, and most people would say that's probably better than specifying a particular technology that uh, the, the car makers ought to make, ought to, ought to uh, uh, adopt. So it's interesting, and Senator Wyden, in the same remarks at the IAPP annual meeting, and or I'm sorry, he was speaking at the the Digital Rights Conference last week in uh, in San Francisco. In addition to to some strong words about the Burr Feinstein bill, including um, not ruling out putting a hold on the on the bill, uh, he also talked about reviving his Secure Data Act of 2014. Which, uh, on its face, you know, would, would kind of prohibit the imposition of encryption backdoors and other mechanisms. Um, but it, it really pushes the debate back to Kalia because even, even, uh, Wyden's bill contains an, uh, an exemption for things authorized by, uh, by Kalia. And so you may, as kind of think as Katie was indicating, push back to a place where the, 
the government may have to specify not just the policy grounds, but the but the technical grounds as well. Yeah, so I I do think that in in one respect, the debate with Apple uh, uh, has um, crystallized the, um, the the more extreme or the more direct uh, approach that we see in Burr Feinstein, uh, because it used to be when this issue came up, uh, you had a bunch of techies saying, I think disingenuously, but saying, oh, there's always ways to get in. Uh, uh, the government should develop its own ways. They, they have all these vulnerabilities and they can pursue them. And now I think the public has seen in a, a very clear way uh, that uh, trying to turn law enforcement into hackers has its own set of costs uh, and, and much more serious costs in the long run than telling the people who provide the encryption that they need to find a way to uh, uh, to decrypt it. Because if the government has to constantly buy uh, access through vulnerabilities and then face the question, you know, the, the, the 10 minutes later they get a demand saying, well, you have to tell us about that vulnerability so we can patch it. So you have to go out and find another one and buy that one. Uh, it, it becomes obvious that that's really not a uh, an appropriate solution to this uh, problem. All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, the FBI uh, uh, and Apple, there's little bits and pieces uh, to pick up there. Uh, the FBI says its, uh, uh, its vulnerability only works on the 5C, demonstrating again uh, the problems that we've seen here. Uh, and uh, the FBI's general counsel uh, um, isn't saying whether the data from the unlocked uh, iPhone is useful. My guess is probably not very. Um, oh, and WhatsApp uh, has uh, enabled end-to-end -end encryption for a billion people. Uh, they already had end-to-end -end encryption uh, in many cases, but uh, I guess they have now adopted a new and even harder-to-crack uh, system in which, you know, which clearly would put them in violation of Burr-Feinstein if Burr-Feinstein passed. Uh, so uh, I think we know where uh, WhatsApp and its owner, Facebook, is likely to stand on Burr-Feinstein after, after their investment in encryption. Yes, it's um, and and uh, it's a. If you look at um, what they're able to do just by comparison, a billion users, end-to-end um, -end encryption for both uh, direct communications as well as group communications, um, chat, video, and any platform, so iOS, Android, or or anything else. So uh, dwarfs the the Apple controversy uh, by comparison. Potentially. So what what WhatsApp is doing and what really all of Silicon Valley is doing is uh, um, making encryption end-to-end, -end, unbreakable, uh, available to everybody on the planet. Whether you're a, uh, a smart human rights campaigner or a dumb criminal, uh, you're going to get the benefit of this. And uh, Silicon Valley companies are going to tell law enforcement everywhere in the world, sorry, we can't help you. Um, my guess is that uh, over time, that's going to educate a whole bunch of people who are crime victims to the uh, unfortunate consequences of providing unbreakable security to uh, to anybody who wants it. Uh, um, and so, uh, while we've we've seen the 
biggest unhappy reaction to the Burr-Feinstein uh, um, already from companies that care about this issue uh, and from uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, the usual suspects, uh, CDT and EFF and uh, TechDirt and the like. Uh, they're already uh, shouting about this. But I think um, over the next five years, there are going to be more and more crime victims, uh, more and more uh, people whose family members died with information on the phone that the family members need or want uh, who are going to be quite surprised and unhappy when they discover what encryption everywhere means. And they're going to say, I, wait a minute, I thought this was supposed to be really good for my civil rights, uh, not make me easier targets for criminals. Uh, and so I, my guess is that uh, Burr-Feinstein, uh, uh, while it isn't going to pass this year, uh, may just be an outlier that slowly attracts more support from people who've actually been burned on the same principle that, uh, you know, a, a conservative is a liberal who's recently been mugged. Um, uh, uh, we're going to see uh, techno-conservatives on this issue who have been victims of uh, encryption everywhere. But I do think it's interesting if you if you look at the recounting about uh, how the FBI got approached by a variety of different vendors of uh, of different uh, 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 tools and, and techniques, uh, you see that the beneficiaries of this debate are not just the, the dumb criminals, but the, the law enforcement becoming uh, smarter quickly about the, the technology options that are available uh, to them. Uh, you know, the, the advance of technology in, in communications is, is not stopping. Um, and it's, in fact, good to see law enforcement approach this not just from a policy perspective and not just from a prosecutorial perspective, but from a technology perspective as well. Um, and if this helps bring new tools and new technologies and new technological approaches to law enforcement, um, then that will only equip them better to deal with the, the technical realities of the future. Well, maybe, I, you know, to... to um uh, adopt one of the arguments of the uh, uh, the uh, arrogant techno elite. Uh, that solution doesn't scale. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, there's there, there. Maybe the FBI can uh, can stay current with the technology and keep finding ways into these uh, uh, phones. But uh, uh, you know the sheriffs in Arkansas will never keep up, and we wouldn't expect them to. And anything that the sheriffs in Arkansas can use is going to also be used by criminals. So my guess is again that this. This demonstrates that uh, um, the solution that people have been pushing, uh, perhaps disingenuously, about having uh, uh, law enforcement find uh, ways in using technical sophistication is just not uh, likely to be a long-term solution. So speaking of uh, people who could have used encryption, though, uh, uh, the Mossack Fonseca leak continues to... Uh, um, uh, that's the Panama Papers leak, uh, uh, for those of you into uh, uh, alliteration. Uh, um, the uh, uh, Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain has, is now deeply on his back foot, if not a couple of feet back from that, uh, uh, because of uh, revelations about his father's uh, having a tax haven. Uh, uh, and others are also... Uh, uh, struggling to explain what they were doing, uh, including some of uh, Putin's uh, uh, good friends and uh, um, uh, uh, orchestra cello buddies, I guess. Uh, um, 
Alan, I don't know what, um, whether you've got some thoughts on this. I was going to ask Katie if she could tell us whether Mossack Fonseca has some liability as a, as a law firm for uh, uh, this uh, intrusion and the exposure of what surely was privileged information. Right. So I'm, I'm not sure the specifics of Panama law, but if it's, you know, if it's anything like here, law firms have, you know, a duty of confidentiality and a duty of competence. And um, both of those duties require the attorneys to, you know, also have a technological competence and make sure that they're employing reasonable measures to make sure that data is secure. And so um, I think the law firm recently said that, that they, uh, they don't, that it wasn't, they've confirmed it was not an inside job and that was, that it, that it was a hacker. And so, um, questions into what kind of data security measures they had to protect, um, some of this very sensitive data of their clients is definitely, um, you know, in addition to anything that they were doing revealed in these papers that are illegal, um, is something that could come back to them. Yeah. And it's interesting. There was yeah. some reporting today that, um, that, uh, the firm had not updated its uh, Outwood, Outlook web access client since 2009 oh. and its client portal since 2013. Um, that that uh, may not be surprising to our law firm listeners uh, of the podcast, um, but it is absolutely not going to be adequate for the pace of today's uh, cybercrime challenges. Uh, it does put a fine point on the fact that um, while lawyers' ethics codes uh, are typically phrased in both general and somewhat um, older terms about obligations towards clients, what that means in practice, and particularly from a technological perspective, um, should be very should be viewed in a very very modern way. So my guess, my memory is that uh, the obligation is subject to a reasonableness requirement. You're, you, you have to have reasonable security, not uh, not perfect security. Uh, but that just throws everything back on the question of what's reasonable. Uh, and uh, it's very easy to portray uh, failures to patch a particular uh, security hole once once it's been exploited as unreasonable. So if there are lawsuits. Uh, it will go to a jury, assuming that, you know, or at least to a fact finder right, uh, under the law that governs the um, the relationship. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're going to see uh, fights over this for a long time. Um, I, it, speaking of fights that are um, going to last a long time, I see the U.S. has added Ch- uh, China's Internet controls to its annual report on national trade barriers, which is something that uh, USTR has been doing for years, uh, uh, but this is the first time that the Great Firewall uh, and restrictions on data uh, moving across that uh, Great Firewall have been described as a trade barrier. Uh, I think that's a potentially big deal because uh, it raises the prospect that at some point USTR could go beyond uh, saying titch, 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 uh, and actually take China to the WTO uh, to complain about uh, the ways in which they control Internet uh, uh, data exports and imports uh, uh, in China. Uh, Stuart, I agree. The, the whole kind of point of the report is to point out barriers um, in a way that, you know, both enhances awareness of the barriers and also, you know, helps 
um, helps and facilitates the negotiations around reducing those barriers. So I think this is probably just a first step in um, in what the United States wants to do to try and try and reduce those sorts of barriers and censorship in China. All right. Well, I'd like to move over quickly to uh, to get Suzanne's uh, uh, perspective. All right, Suzanne, uh, we're so glad to have you on uh, on the show. This is this is terrific, and we're so glad you fixed that uh, uh, the title for uh, for NPPD, or at least are in the process of it. We're working uh, with Congress on that, Stuart. It's not something okay. we can do that we can do unilaterally, but ah, oh, well, this is one where it would be nice for Congress to to, to fix it because NPPD just says nothing. Uh, I'm sorry to say. Uh, so, but let's let's talk about stuff that Congress has already done. Uh, they have passed the uh, Cybersecurity Act and authorized uh, information sharing between the private sector and the government. And uh, um, uh, DHS is at the center of uh, implementing information sharing. Uh, oh, where do we stand? Uh, uh, what's been done, and what what remains to be done? Yeah. Well, we were really pleased and grateful to Congress. You know, they have acted um, on a number of important cybersecurity bills in a bipartisan fashion, and I think it's been uh, really a, a kind of unique, uh, uh, uniquely productive for Congress, which, which we're really pleased about. And this was really important, this uh, Cybersecurity Act of 2015, which provided the legal framework for a capability that we'd already, of course, been developing for automated information sharing, for machines to talk to machines and get information out, you know, at the speed with which our adversary acts. Uh, and the legislation, importantly, uh, pr- provides for liability protection for the private sector for sharing cyber threat indicators, so information that's particularly relevant for network defense. Uh, and interestingly, it provides it not just for sharing that information with the government, but also for sharing it uh, within the private sector with uh, these information sharing and analysis organizations. Uh, and so it begins to create that network of networks, right, so that if we, as my deputy undersecretary, Dr. Phyllis Schneck, likes to say, this is the see something, say something for cyber, uh, if a machine sees something malicious, an indicator, uh, it can in in real time, in an automated way, get that information out to this, this network of networks, uh, to folks right uh, immediately. And so where today an adversary can use the same infrastructure, the same malware, the same indicators over and over and over again, uh, the idea here is to get us to a point where uh, they can try something once. It'll be detected by the network, and everyone will be um, will, will be informed in in an automated way in near real time, and able to I, take defensive measures. So that's the that's the goal of the. That's the, I, it, it's a great idea. I, I I do think you know there's always a long tail problem here that. Uh, um, people who are very serious about cybersecurity are going to join these uh, information sharing uh, automated systems and quickly find ways to uh, use the information to protect themselves. What do you do about uh, the the Mossack Fonseca's and the small and medium businesses around the world to, uh, who, uh, you know, uh, for whom cybersecurity is uh, uh, just one of 
40 things that they have to worry about each week. Right. So particularly, let me pick up on the on the law firms uh, and the Panama Papers uh, case. Uh, I, I hope that this is a another wake-up call for law firms. You know, we've been talking, Stuart, you and I, for a long time now about the yes. importance of law firms taking cybersecurity seriously and the importance of clients, potential clients, customers of law firms, to be asking those questions. It's part of making the market more effective in driving appropriate cybersecurity behavior, right, is that customers and clients, if I'm a client looking for a law firm to do my intellectual property work, for example, and I'm not asking questions to try to assure myself that they are thinking about uh, cybersecurity, then I'm making a mistake uh, in hiring that firm. And so, you know, I would like to think that this is another teachable moment particularly for, for both the law firms and, as I say, for potential clients. Uh, I, I can, the market I, will drive those decisions that perhaps today aren't being taken seriously in some cases. Yeah, go ahead. I agree with you. I, I, I agree with you that the, uh, it is a teachable moment, uh, and we've started to see clients uh, uh, concerned about this. Uh, it's not. It, it's maybe not the ideal expression of concern. They're, they're sending around these standard uh, um, uh, checklist uh, items and the checklist items because they are written for other sorts of uh, 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 contractors tend to focus on leaks of data through insiders, which is certainly a, a realistic worry, but something that, that law firms have had to worry about a long time, uh, for a long time. But I think the the harder problems are how do you keep hackers out of your system and uh, not all of the security measures that companies are, the clients are asking for are focused on the cyber side. And I think they would probably do better to spend more time on that and less time on, on making sure that uh, uh, people have mechanisms for controlling uh, what papers are taken out of their uh, their offices. Right, right. Well, as you say, both are important, but I do think that the cyber piece is, uh, you know, something that really requires a concerted effort. And, and, and as I say, I hope that the market will help drive. And as for the other small and medium-sized firms, we, uh, particularly the Department of Homeland Security, feel a particular obligation to assist uh, small and medium-sized firms who, are, who don't often have, may not even have a chief security officer, a CISO, a CIO. Uh, they've got an IT person, perhaps, who, who has to fulfill all of those roles, right? So I do think that these information sharing and analysis organizations uh, will, that the aperture on those will, will widen. So up until now, we've had these uh, ISACs, information sharing analysis centers, for each of the critical infrastructure sectors. The president issued an executive order, as you know, uh, uh, almost a year ago now, saying we want to have information sharing analysis organizations for uh, groupings of private sector folks that can come together in a variety of ways, not just around critical infrastructure sectors. And so we at DHS uh, stood up a standards body, gave it a grant to develop best practices that could help private sector uh, companies form their own information sharing and analysis organizations or 
figure out which of the many, we hope, information sharing analysis organizations would be best for them to join. How can they determine whether this is a good organization that will protect their information appropriately, for example. But you could certainly see ISAOs forming around small and medium-sized business unique needs, requirements, capabilities. Uh, and then it's a way for them to pool, and then those ISAOs, again, plug into, for example, our automated information sharing, which mm-hmm. is which is up and running. We, we're, we've on on the day that Congress dictated, March 17th, the secretary was able, despite the, it, that being a very aggressive timeline, to stand up and say, yes, we are open for business. We are available. We are open for sending and receiving automated information. Uh, machine to machine. We're going to start small. We are starting small. We want to make sure that we work through these early. We we, we put this system together uh, under very aggressive timelines, and we want to make sure that we work through and learn the lessons that uh, to to make it ever better. It will be a very dynamic kind of system, um, but we're we are open for business, and we put out the month before that, as you know, in mid-February, guidelines for the private sector. Here's here's how you participate in automated information sharing. And if I might, Stuart, for your listeners, I want to give them a website to go to to get further information on that. Absolutely, and we'll, we'll, in, we'll include it in the blog post if you send it on uh, so that people can click on it as well. Terrific. It's www.us-cert.gov. And then uh, slash AIS for automated information sharing. Uh, so we have we put out guidance on that. We've put out uh, our operating procedures are up there. Even the procedures that we're going to use for sharing with other federal departments and agencies. And then really importantly, all of the privacy guidance and guidelines that will govern this to make sure that we're doing this in a way that uh, earns and sustains the public trust. So I want to come. I want to. I do want to come back to that uh, uh, if we have time, because I, I'm, I'm a little concerned about whether the privacy standards for dealing with the uh, open text fields are going to slow us down. But before we we do that, I, I feel like the uh, the main news of the week has been additional information about the uh, Ukraine grid attack, uh, and that is such an existential threat, uh, the possibility that we could lose power for substantial periods of time, that I wanted, uh, if you're comfortable with it, to talk a little bit about the uh, 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 what happened in the Ukraine. Uh, uh, and uh, if I if I remember right, uh, the Ukraine attack uh, uh, was a uh, uh, an infrastructure attack infiltration of the network, uh, uh, and uh, then um, uh, adoption of a piece of malware to gain access to the Ukraine power system. And after uh, the malware had been used uh, uh, to um, uh, gain access. Uh, then um, as part of this attack, uh, first the malware was going to get in, the black energy uh, uh, malware was going to get into the uh, grid. And then there's a DDoS, there was a DDoS attack on 
the uh, help desks of the um, providers of uh, um, uh, network services uh, in order to keep everybody tied up on a small task and not focused on the fact that their grid was about to go down. And then finally, if I understand it, the uh, uh, the government, uh, the attacker, uh, uh, actually went in and started manipulating the industrial control system to uh, 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 shut down breakers and uh, uh, take action that was going to cause grid failures. Uh, it's a very elaborate um, attack. And I wondered uh, if... Uh, if 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 you want to comment on whether that's the kind of attack we should be worried about in the United States. Stuart, uh, yes, not only am I comfortable talking about the cyber attack on Ukraine's electric grid, I've um, taken every opportunity that I've been given uh, in public speaking to to talk about it. I think it's incredibly important. And we are, in fact, beginning a multi-city uh, campaign all across the country to make sure that we get the word to our uh, critical infrastructure owners and operators about what happened there. Uh, and, and the good news is that we know how to mitigate uh, what happened and how to prevent what happened in Ukraine. But folks have to take steps. They have to take action. They have to understand. This is not just something that affects the uh, potential, has the potential to affect the electric grid, but really almost any uh, industrial control systems. Uh, across the country in critical infrastructure. And so it's very important that we, we, as I say, that we get that word out. And, uh, you know, in terms of what happened there, I will say there's been a lot of talk about black energy and, uh, you know, what our team found is that it was present, but we're still going through the analysis and it's, and it's not a definite conclusion yet about what, what role it played, if any, frankly, in this attack. Um, but okay. it was clearly a very sophisticated uh, attack. It was uh, occurred at three different major uh, facilities within 30 minutes of each other, uh, and there there was indeed remote access, remote operation uh, of the breakers. I mean, the the folks who were sitting at their terminals were watching as their hands were off the keyboard and the mouse as as their screens were going through the steps. Uh, and, and it's clear to us that it was conducted by multiple external humans. Uh, they were they were either using existing remote act administration tools at the operating system level, or they were using a remote uh, ICS, industrial control system client software, coming in through VPN. But they were they we think they they were as we've seen so often in these instances, they had acquired le legitimate credentials and. It, it seems pretty clear to us that this is not something that just came into somebody's head that day. They've done a fair amount uh, of, of uh, reconnaissance, if you will, work ahead of time. Uh, so a very sophisticated attack, very, very concerning, not just the, the immediate damage they did by, um, uh, you know, opening and closing breakers, uh, you know, through the industrial control system, but then the use of kill death to, to effectively brick uh, computers and erase the forensic data uh, toward the end of that attack. So something that we we take very seriously, and 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 the bottom line is, uh, it was not the cyber IT specialists that got the power back on. Uh, it, was, it was not a cyber security solution 
that that made this last only six hours. It was the physical experts. It was the folks who got in trucks and knew where to go and drove out and found the breakers that had been tripped through the uh, remote access uh, tools in the industrial control system and manually um, put those breakers back in place. And so that's, again, a reminder of a message that I've been working very hard in our team to get out to all of our uh, private sector folks and our government folks, which is make sure that you are, when you are looking at the uh, risks and threats to whether it's your mission essential functions or your continuity of operations, and you're looking at the cyber threats, that you're also bringing your physical and program folks to the table. Because they're yes. the ones who can both answer the so what of your cyber uh, risks what are the implications, what are the consequences, but also maybe in the best position to help you mitigate those consequences um, should an event be successful. Well, it certainly uh, it, it certainly plays into a theme that you've sounded for uh, years now, which is that physical and cyber uh, security are intimately connected. Uh, so congratulations in that regard. Uh, but I, I have to ask about this. Uh, um, it makes sense that uh, uh, power grids in the Ukraine still have a lot of physical breakers and uh, uh, substations where you can go and do stuff. Uh, I'm a little worried that uh, we're too sophisticated for that and that uh, it would, if we had to come up with that solution in the United States after an attack, we wouldn't be able to do it as well as the Ukrainians. So you're right that we're becoming more and more cyber dependent. Uh, one of the things as we've looked across the sectors at uh, the, the potential consequences of successful cyber attack, we believe the electric grid is still relatively resilient, uh, and a lot of that is because so much of that infrastructure was built in the 1970s before we were so cyber dependent, and the cyber pieces have largely been tacked on to key elements right. of that electric grid. And so they are still there. But but they're, those are rapidly reaching the end of their useful life. Uh, and we are increasingly moving towards smart grid, toward greater cyber dependency. And, and, and that's one of the reasons we work so closely with the electricity subsector uh, to make sure that we're building cybersecurity in as we do that. And so I meet with the Deputy Secretary of Energy and others uh, with about 30 or 40 CEOs from the electricity sector three times a year, and we talk uh, often in between uh, to make sure that they're focused on both physical and cyber uh, uh, risks to the electricity that we all rely upon across all of those other sectors. So the other thing that I'm struck by is just how sophisticated this attack is, that somebody had to go out and scout the, the various industrial control and uh, uh, computer networks uh, to come up with a, a map of what uh, was needed to be done. Then they had to actually go in and uh, um, uh, manipulate the system. They couldn't just send out malware and have the malware commit whatever mayhem was necessary. It actually had to be uh, uh, handled by a group of individuals uh, um, attacking the system. Uh, and then they had an elaborate uh, mechanism for cleaning it up and, and essentially uh, making the forensic data much harder to obtain. All of that, and, and, and there's not a 
There's not a nickel of criminal profit in that attack at any point. Uh, and so that leaves me pretty firmly of the view that this was a, uh, a nation state attack because there's no criminal value in launching this attack. Uh, um, and given, given the prominence of black energy, uh, um, you sort of look east from Ukraine uh, to figure out who's doing this. Uh, how far has, um, DHS and the rest of the U.S. government come in attributing uh, uh, the attack or in thinking about how to uh, deter attacks like this? So DHS doesn't do attribution, and I know, but I know there are elements of the of the U.S. government that are uh, indeed pouring over all of the technical data that we have, uh, and we have not yet reached a point where we can, as a government, uh, attribute these attacks. Um, yeah, I, I understand. I, I'd be cautious about it, too. Let me ask another question. Uh, um, obviously, it took a long time to prepare for an attack of this kind. Uh, uh, and we should be thinking about, even if an attack hasn't been launched, how do we um, identify that someone is scouting our network, uh, uh, leaving behind tools? Uh, uh, what, what are the indicators and warnings that we could be uh, uh, alerting companies to uh, uh, so that we can respond before the attack rather than afterwards? Yep, and that's the right question, Stuart. And we put out a public alert uh, 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 about this attack, giving the details that we had at that time about what actually happened, but most importantly, including a whole series of mitigation measures. And again, that alert can be found at the uh, ICS-CERT uh, at hq.dhs.gov. Um, and, and there are a number of reports there, uh, including uh, links to reports that we've put out previously about how to effectively defend industrial control systems. So there's an ICS cert uh, uh, publication, seven steps to effectively defend industrial control systems. Um, there's another alert uh, document product, uh, improving industrial control systems cybersecurity with defense in depth strategies. So those are out there, but the alert itself talks about the kinds of things that need to be done in terms of just implementing information resource management best practices. So application whitelisting is one that is particularly useful in industrial control systems uh, and in many ways easier to implement in industrial control systems perhaps than in some uh, corporate networks. Uh, isolating, we know this, we've been talking about this for many, many years, isolating that industrial control system network from any untrusted networks, especially the Internet, um, if at all possible. Lock down those unused ports. Um, make sure that you limit remote access functionality wherever you can, you know, and be aware of that which, is, which you have open, and if possible, make it one way instead of bidirectional. Uh, so there are a number of things that, that we can, uh, you know, alert people to and things that can be done that are not, you know, necessarily uh, particularly expensive and really kind of basic good uh, best practices, particularly for industrial control systems. And so I would really encourage folks. I know this is, I know this is not you. I know this is not your responsibility, uh, but I certainly hope that uh, somebody is giving an enormously detailed, tactically detailed uh, 
uh, description of what they think happened to the Ukrainians uh, uh, so that uh, sometime three months from now, uh, uh, when there's a failure uh, of the grid in Moscow, we know how it happened. Because uh, a payback is hell in this area, and uh, my guess is that uh, there will be payback, because uh, uh, I don't think Ukraine's going to take this line down. Um, but uh, I won't ask you to comment on that. Uh, let me let me go back to the point I wanted uh, that I said I would come back to, which is the uh, uh, the privacy standards, which are going to have an impact on uh, uh, how companies review their uh, uh, data uh, and automated sharing and the automated de- the determinations in advance that automated sharing is consistent with privacy is great. My understanding is that the uh, uh, department has determined that where there's an open text field, they can't just automate the sharing because they don't know what's going to be in there and there might be uh, unjustifiable sharing of personalized, personal identification, identifiable information in there. And that's being reviewed kind of by hand. Uh, I worry that um, over time, the automated stuff that we have identified now as worth sharing will evolve and there'll be other stuff we want to uh, uh, share that's going to get shared first I assume in the text fields and the more valuable information we share in the text fields and the more we hold it up for privacy review the greater the risk that uh, this information sharing is going to get less valuable over time. So Stuart I think there are a couple things that we've done that mitigate that. First of all the open text fields are a tiny percentage of the fields in this structured format for automated information sharing. So in the number of fields changes over time as, as the, as folks talk about and provide suggestions about what would be useful. But there's around over 300 fields, uh, last time I was briefed and two of them, uh, were open text fields. I think as we've begun to try to bring in more defensive measures, I think you're right. We may, uh, wind up with a few more open text fields, but The important thing to remember is that everything that is automated goes through. It goes through even if there's something, if there's something in the open text field, and there isn't always, obviously, but if there is, that gets pulled aside. And everything else that's in that structured format, all the rest of those fields go through in an automated way. So nothing is getting held up but that which requires a set of eyes on it. And again, that review, we believe, can happen very quickly. And so that's not a long delay either. It will happen much more quickly than, than, uh, you know, I mean, again, we've, we've reduced the time for reviews of these things that require human input, um, dramatically. So I, I think certainly today it's not a major concern. And I actually think, Stuart, that the trend will be toward less and less reliance on open text fields because they are not machine to machine readable typically so what what we need what we're trying to uh, encourage here is set up the infrastructure so that you can receive these indicators in an automated way uh right now we're using sticks and taxi right as our as our mm-hmm. standards for transmitting that in a machine readable way but then you also have to make sure that you have uh, systems in place, network defense technology, that can take those indicators and put them in your intrusion prevention, in your continuous diagnostics and mitigation, in your, your technology that's defending your network. 
And if you want to operate at that speed that this automated sharing allows you to do, then it needs to come in in a format, right, that your that your technology can very quickly um, take on board and act on. So I think, I think that, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah, I, I, if I could, if I could uh, suggest what what that means is that when you do a review of an open text field because it's there. Uh, the use of the open text field is, is sort of a, a sign of failure. Uh, it means that the 300 other um, uh, categories didn't actually provide the, uh, an opportunity to, to convey this information that somebody felt they ought to convey. So that the review shouldn't just be, is there uh, private, personally identifiable information in here, but how did we fail uh, and what additional categories do we need in order for people not to feel a need to use the text field? I'm not sure I would necessarily call it failure, but I, but I but you're, you're on the right track, which is as much as possible, and you're absolutely right, that we'll look at these over time and say, okay, are there ways we can automate more of this? Are we seeing that there's enough of a pattern in the open text things that we're getting that we can now create a field or fields to capture that. Absolutely. And that's that's part of this process that I talked about at the outset that we're going to learn as we go along. And, and a big part of that is going to happen because more and more people will participate and sign on and understand the value of this. And and that, Stuart, is, is a huge part of our outreach, the importance of our being able to reach out all across the country at scale to the private sector, and particularly our critical infrastructure owners and operators, but also all of those uh, vendors and, and other private sector folks upon which they depend. And, and if I might sort of close with a, an, another reference to the work that we're doing to try, with Congress to try to stand up the cyber and infrastructure protection uh, as, a, as a new operating component at DHS, a big part of that is making sure that we are able to use the resources we have all across the country and the relationships we've developed sort of on the physical side of the house and bring them to the fight, to the cyber fight, in a very integrated uh, and, and robust way. And that's a, that's a big part of what we're trying to do. Well, I think that's great. And I, 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 you, you've already provided the transition. I always ask our guests if there's any upcoming events uh, that they want to promote. Uh, uh, I won't suggest you want to promote um, a congressional testimony. That's uh, uh, more an opportunity to uh, uh, to be beaten up necessarily than uh, to uh, uh, provide new information. But do you have some uh, uh, upcoming publications or speeches or other things that you want to uh, let our listeners know about? I think rather than uh, testimony, Stuart, what I'm hoping is the upcoming event is a markup of legislation to authorize the, stand, the secretary to proceed with his and the administration's plan to stand up this cyber and infrastructure protection. Um, but we have, we have lots of outreach coming up. I've highlighted the campaign we'll be doing around the Ukraine uh, cyber attack. And so uh, it, with your uh, permission, Stuart, we'll get you the list of the cities and the dates yes. at which we're going to be where and uh, and other significant events. And if you want to post those with your blog, that'd be great. Okay. Well, thank you, Suzanne. This was terrific. Uh, uh, the uh, Undersecretary for uh, NPPD, which stands for the National Protection and Programs Division, but hopefully will be renamed uh, soon under the uh, 
uh, Truth in Government Agency Labeling Act uh, that uh, Suzanne has been uh, uh, pressing for, uh, along with the reorganization. Uh, uh, thanks, Suzanne. Uh, thanks, Alan and Katie, for your contributions. Uh, and as always, we're open to feedback. If you want to send us uh, uh, suggestions at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, or uh, leave us a good review on iTunes, uh, where we uh, unaccountably have survived Tim Cook's uh, scrutiny for the last several months. Uh, uh, this has been episode 111 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, coming up, we're going to be joined by Mike Hayden, uh, former director of the CIA and the NSA and author of Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror, and Oren Kerr, everyone's favorite uh, computer crime law guru. Uh, we hope you'll join us for those and other uh, uh, programs as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.